The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, it's uh, February 26th here in Queens, New York, from where I'm speaking. Uh, and the, uh, we're getting uh, finally a little bit of a relief rally here in the gold markets and uh, some of the things that we watch here closely on this show and in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, which you can uh, subscribe to if you go to uh, miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. You can also subscribe or, well, you can't subscribe at the moment, but you can sign up for Chen Lin's newsletter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, you can put your name on a waiting list. Chen Lin's uh, brilliant newsletter has done extremely well for his subscribers, and uh, he passes on, uh, he tells his subscribers what he's doing and how he's made uh, a lot of money over the years and, and continues to come up with great ideas and uh, and does very well for his subscribers. But it is not open in general right now, only uh, to those that are on a waiting list. And as attrition takes place, he adds people to his uh, to his excellent newsletter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? But again, my newsletter is available, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, and you go to miningstocks.com uh, to learn more about that. Well, certainly we are... Uh, witnessing some very, very difficult times uh, in the mining uh, share business, certainly in the uh, in the exploration business. I haven't seen it much tougher than this in uh, the decades that I've been in this business. Uh, but at sometimes uh, these are where money is made. It's it's when the markets are extremely depressed, and there are people that are doing uh, that have really made a lot of money over the over the years uh, are able to. A ferret out value when everybody else seems to be disinterested in in it. Um, I should tell you that uh, I mentioned Jay Taylor. Uh, I mentioned uh, miningstocks.com. I should mention that Jay Taylor Media is probably the best place to go to to follow everything that I do. You can also follow me on Twitter under Jay Taylor Media handle. Uh, but Jay Taylor Media is really a revised website that I'm uh, becoming much more actively involved with and one that I think has an awful lot of very interesting information on it. Uh, let me just uh, give you some examples of what we've got there. 
first of all, if you go there, you can find out who next week's guests are going to be on this show. And we usually have pictures and bios of next week's guests. And we also give you a little a recap of last week as well with last week's guests there. Um, we have constant uh, – you, you're able to constantly track in real time uh, various markets like the gold, silver, platinum, palladium. We've got copper, lead, zinc, and oil prices there in real time. So you can go there and watch those markets, keep up with it while uh, what the prices are. In fact, I use this site myself. Uh, I should mention also not only those commodity prices, but also the U.S. dollar index is displayed there. Uh, so you have in one in one screen a lot of different uh, a lot of different metals prices you can keep track of, uh, which I think is very it's very helpful to me. I use it a lot. At the present time, we also have a movie trailer. Uh, we've, we were talking about the David Tice's new movie that's coming up very soon called uh, The Bubble. Uh, this is a, sort of a documentary that's going to have a lot of the guests that have been on this show in the past. Ron Paul, Peter Schiff, Jim Rogers, who, by the way, will be uh, one of two main guests today, is, on this, uh, is in this video. Doug Casey, Gene Epstein, who's with me frequently, Mark Faber has been with me, and a lot of other uh, people as well will appear in this video called The Bubble. And uh, again, it's a David Tice uh, movie that he's, he's standing uh, behind and putting it uh, in motion. And David will also be a guest on this show in a couple of three, four weeks from now uh, to talk about uh, The Bubble, this uh, movie. In essence, it's trying to help people see what's coming. Um, you know, the mainstream people like to say, nobody could have seen what happened in 2008, 2009. Well, that's a lot of baloney because there were a lot of people that were predicting. Uh, when I say a lot of people, relatively few for sure. But most everyone that I know and the Austrians that, that follow the Austrian School of Economics were predicting sooner or later there were going to be dire consequences to the kind of nonsensical uh, let's say, non-free market economic policies that were, have been put in place in America uh, to a growing extent over many decades. And now we're starting to pay the piper, I'm afraid. Well, this movie, The Bubble, is uh, going to help people understand, again, with these uh, people that I talk to, it's a documentary, but the trailer is there. If you go to J. Taylor Media, you can go there and check out this uh, going to be a very interesting, I think very important Movie more than interesting, um, but I think helpful can be helpful to you to see uh, what could be coming into the future based on uh, on the policies that have been implemented. Again, anti free market policies from both Democrats and Republicans that are being put forward, and uh, we are paying a very dear price for that now, in my view. Uh, but uh, to go there and tell your friends also. Uh, you know, so many, I hear so many people that listen to this show and people that I see at the conferences where I speak and people in my newsletter uh, that I talk to that subscribe to my newsletter talk about how they're trying to get their friends to see what's coming. And it's very difficult to get most people to think outside of the box. We are inundated with the mainstream media all the time. And so therefore, you know, we're being programmed in a way that I believe that the policymakers want us to think. Uh, and that is certainly not uh, they want us to believe and have confidence in them because it is a gigantic con game. This whole thing of free market, uh, the antithesis of free markets are a con game. The uh, the currency that we're using, the Fed, I believe, is constantly playing games to try to keep us off balance, to keep us thinking that uh, that they're going. The the integrity of the dollar is strong, even as they debase the dollar with trillions and trillions of new dollars being 
uh, being created. If you just think about how ludicrous that notion is, that we have a strong dollar policy or we have a policy of a stable currency, how can anything retain its value if its supply is increasing exponentially? It's just nonsense. But in order to keep the game going, they have to keep all of us off balance and thinking about uh, that things are, are really okay. As long as the masses of people think that. But those who were ready for 2008, 2009 were in much better shape than those who were not. And so uh, the bubble, go to J. Taylor Media and uh, look at the trailer uh, for the bubble. Which is, uh, I'd like to also mention that on, our, on my new website, uh, jtaylormedia.com, there are an awful lot of other very interesting articles. Some, A couple of them here and there that I write but a lot of other different writers there as well. And I would really urge you to go to J. Taylor Media and start to follow and read some of those articles. And there is a way, a uh, place at the end of each article where you can um, respond to the uh, to the writer and, and to uh, opine on it. Uh, we'd like to get you interested in reading those articles and giving your own take on them. Uh, for example, here's an article that appears in today's uh, J. Taylor Media. Uh, the article is head, headed Top Alternatives to Paper Money by, uh, and it's written from, it comes from the Daily Reckoning. Well, the article really talks about how you can keep your wealth from being stolen by government, um, either through taxes or inflation. Uh, there are different mechanisms that the market is devising when there's a need, and there is a need because the government is, uh, taking our wealth from us either through higher taxes or through, uh, inflation. And, you know, how can you keep your wealth? Well, there's bitcoins. There's something called the Shire Silver. It's a credit card-like device uh, with shreds of silver and gold in them that uh, is readily accepted in many different places in New Hampshire and various places around the world. Anyway, there's an article at J. Taylor Media about this. Uh, you know, with Bernanke destroying, destroying the dollar as rapidly as he is, as the author Jeffrey Tucker says, uh, there will be a growing number of different market initiatives to try to help people to, uh, to preserve their wealth. Certainly gold and silver is the way to do it, but what forms are best to have gold and silver and also to have liquidity with that asset? It's very difficult. You can buy gold coins and put them away somewhere, but if you're going to walk, uh, go down to the corner store to buy a loaf of bread, hardly a, a Kruger Rand or a one-ounce gold coin is the way to do it. So there's a lot of innovations that are starting to come in uh, into play in the gold markets. Here's another article on today's J. Taylor Media that I think is really worth considering, one that I think about a lot and certainly one that Mr. Bernanke thinks a lot about. Uh, a dollar, a dropping dollar, question mark, not so fast, question mark. And this is really, uh, Greg Gunther of the Daily Reckoning has written this article and it's, uh, really the, the he's, he's really talking about the dollar and how long can it survive and, and he's issuing a cautionary note to a lot of gold bugs who are hyperinflationists who are concerned, uh, rightfully concerned that the dollar is going to uh, go to its, uh, to zero value and that, uh, at, you need to own gold and other assets and tangibles to retain your value. I don't think the author is disagreeing with that, but what he's talking about is that uh, you know they, they can keep the game going a lot longer in fact I think you know the kind of 
propaganda that comes out of the Fed, for example, the thing that we heard recently about um, uh, about how some of the Fed governors were thinking it's time to stop QE. Well, what happened? The dollar gets stronger. People start to think, oh, well, yeah, maybe we're not having a runaway hyperinflation. So it's all about it's all a gigantic con game, in my view. Uh, part of it is it's really devised to keep us believing in the currency, believing in the policymakers, uh, and as long as you don't see something going in one direction all the time, it, it sort of helps to keep things stable for the moment. But underlying it, of course, is this relentless increase in the money supply that is debasing the currency that is going to lead to uh, to all manner of evil eventually. And so, of course, that's why we are interested in owning gold and silver and other tangibles as well. Um, I should mention today's sponsors. I don't think I mentioned them. Uh, Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Dynacor Gold Mines, uh, Golden Arrow Resources, Miranda Gold, Precipitate Gold, and Renaissance Gold. Um, let me just mention a couple of things today. We're going to be talking to Amira Nani in just a couple of minutes here after our first commercial break with Brazil Resources, and uh, I'll let him uh, bring you up to date on that. Uh, Eurasian Minerals, I, I'm hearing some rumors that there are some big things potentially happening in Haiti. I don't know how real these are, but uh, apparently Newmont is a very closed is very closed about what it's doing. Newmont is uh, not one of these major companies that likes to talk, and there's no reason for them to. But I'm hearing there's a lot of activity in that joint venture down there, uh, Eurasian uh, Minerals with Newmont. Uh, Eurasian, of course, is one of our sponsors. Golden Arrow Resources, uh, they came up with some nice a nice uh, silver intercept at their project in the Chinchillas project where there was a sizable gold, uh, silver deposit in the making. Uh, Miranda Gold just announced uh, a nice uh, joint venture arrangement, strategic uh, arrangement with Agneagle Eagle down in Brazil, or I'm sorry, down in Colombia, uh, and Precipitate Gold. Well, we're going to be talking to Jeff Wilson in the second hour of today's show at about 4.30 about that company's uh, operation in the Dominican Republic and uh, a new project in Mexico as well. Well, let's uh, just a word about today's show. Um, Jim Rogers and Dr. Alvin Schmidt are first-time guests and uh, passing wisdom from his latest book, Street Smarts. Uh, Jim Rogers will talk about the importance of thinking beyond conventional wisdom and understanding cultures outside of the West uh, in gaining his street smarts. And you'll need to, you're going to need these street smarts to, to survive the decline of the West. Jim Rogers believes that the West is in decline for many of the reasons, uh, that our second guest is going to talk about. I'm talking about Dr. Uh, Alvin Schmidt. And he'll discuss the book about how Christianity changed the world. Uh, now that the West has largely turned its back on Christianity, could that be one of the reasons for our decline? Well, regardless of your take on the cause of our decline, surviving uh, in the here and now, right now, this is what we all know we've got to do. It's something that we can all agree on. And so, as I mentioned, Amir Adnani is going to be with us uh, in just another minute here uh, from Brazil Resources to talk about what he's doing uh, in uh, down there in Brazil with that company. Uh, Amir has had a remarkable, successful track record in the past with Uranium Energy Corp, and it looks like he's uh, doing it again with Brazil Resources. And then, as I mentioned also at around 4.30 today, Jeffrey Wilson of Precipitate Gold. That's a company, I think, that has some real good promise uh, with a prospect in Dominican Republic, and they've also picked up something that looks quite interesting in Mexico. So, well, that's uh, we've got to go to break right now, and when we come back, I'm going to be with Amir Adnan Nanny, so you're not going to want to miss what he has to say. During this time when share prices are really quite depressed, uh, it pays to listen to successful people like Amira Danis. You don't go away. We'll be right back. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Precipitate Gold is focused on exploring and developing its gold properties in the Dominican Republic in Mexico. Precipitate's management team has been responsible for numerous takeovers. With valuations exceeding $280 million, with a successful team and a growing portfolio of quality gold assets, including an attractive concession adjacent to GoldQuest's holdings in the Dominican Republic, the company is well positioned for growth in 2013. For more information, please visit www.precipitategold.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Amir Adnani of Brazil Resources. Amir, of course, is also uh, heads up at Uranium Energy Corp., which we talked to recently a few weeks back about that company. It's been very successful, uh, a, a company, the first new uranium producer in recent times in the, in the United States and one that has good growth prospects. But today we want to talk about Brazil Resources. It is a sponsor to this show. Brazil Resources trades on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol BRI, and you can buy it down here in the U.S. under the symbol BRIZF. Uh, today, earlier today, at least, it was trading at a dollar eleven when I last checked it, with forty-one point three million shares. It's outstanding. It's only a market cap of forty-six million dollars, which is maybe more than some of the juniors these days. But here's the thing about Brazil Resources: the share price has held very strong, very firm. It's not gone up a lot, but unlike most of the other exploration companies, it's held uh, it's held very firm. So we're really happy to uh, have Amir with us again. Welcome, Amir. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me again. Good to have you. Now, I, I want to. I have to ask you. I just mentioned that I, mean, I was looking at the chart before we went on the air, and uh, the chart looks decent compared to most. I mean, most of the junior exploration stocks have been an absolute disaster if you look at their charts, and people have lost tons of money. Brazil Resources is held in there fairly nicely, uh, in spite of this, you know, wretched market. You haven't had any great new discoveries. You've had. You've been building your company. You've been acquiring some properties here and there. 
uh, and and that's all good. But a lot of other companies are, are you know acquiring things too, and their share prices continue to go down. How do you account for your relatively stable share price at a time when most of the other juniors have have been decimated? Well, when you look at the the history of the company, it's a relatively young company. We IPO'd about eighteen months ago on the TSX venture. The IPO price was sixty-five cents a share. Stock today is at a dollar eleven, and so in the last eighteen months, where, as you point out, uh, a lot of share prices of junior resource companies have uh, really come down sharply. Uh, we've actually uh, doubled from the IPO price and have held in here in a fairly stable range. I would say you really got to look at, I think, a few factors. First of all, I'd say we're probably the only company active in gold exploration in South America uh, as a pre-producer, which as a bank uh, involved as an equity shareholder. You know, 12% of our company is owned by one of the oldest merchant banks in Brazil, Brazil Invest, and the chairman and the founder of that bank also sits on our board of directors. You've seen this, Jay. I mean, banks typically like to lend money to you. It's quite notable that this group has taken a major equity position in our company. Mm -hmm. And also with other major institutional shareholders that have, I guess, really shown their support and commitment to the company uh, by supporting and uh, holding on to their shares. Uh, I think that's part of the reason we've performed. But I think our business model is also unique. We don't want to take the cash that we have on hand, and we've got about $6 million of cash or $7 million as of the last reported filing. We don't want to just take that cash and just spend it in the ground and run out of cash. We think this is a great time to make acquisitions because... Most of the sector is in distress. Companies aren't raising money, and it's a great time to grow. And so with that said, you look at the fact that in 18 months, not only has the share price uh, stayed relatively strong, but in fact we've made six acquisitions. And so at a time when I think it's tough to find growth in this industry, we're actually growing the business, and this growth uh, is coming at very attractive valuations uh, because uh, things are not frothy. The valuations out there are not frothy, and so it's a great mm-hmm. time to acquire and build a strong uh, project portfolio. Well, there's no no doubt that those that have the money at times like these, when the when everybody else is getting uh, butchered, it's uh, it's really very it's a very opportune time. So, one of the strategies in my own newsletter and in picking. Sponsors of this show too, or to try to find companies that can uh, preserve their capital and be in a strong position when uh, during these kinds of times. So, Amir, you're in Brazil. Just maybe take 30 seconds to explain why you like Brazil. In the last uh, five years, uh, we've just looking at foreign direct investments coming into Brazil, looking at mining M&A activity, just looking at the entire landscape, and considering that geopolitical risk is at everyone's and on everyone's mind uh, in mining. Uh, Brazil is really a shining star, not just in South America, but globally as being a premier mining uh, jurisdiction these days. Uh, The economy and the politics have been uh, stable now for quite some time. The economy has been growing as being, you know, the B and BRICS countries now. And uh, it's uh, really been a, become a diversified economy, Jay, where it's not just about natural resources and mining, but um, they've got a well-diversified economy. And it's a heck of a big country, so a lot of unexplored geology still to, uh, to be developed. So for all those reasons, I think, you know, whether it's general electric or major mining companies, you see major companies and corporations are investing heavily in Brazil, the Chinese and the Asian um, countries, and they're mining um, uh, companies are active as well. So 
it's, uh, I would really say it's in the sort of top five mining jurisdictions in the world today. It's always a good place to be when it's, mm. it has that type of profile. And, of course, it's nice to be in a country as high profile as Brazil right now with very strong uh, local partners. You know, as I mentioned earlier, with having a major Brazilian bank involved as a partner and a, and a large equity holder down there sets it apart. We're not just down there looking at projects. We're down there with uh, the right local sponsorship. Yeah, you have um, uh, you've, you've attracted Amir as you did with your uranium company some really good talent. Um, just mention real quickly, maybe thirty seconds. Tell us about your top uh, technical people that you've got. You've got that that connection with the banking interest that helps to take care of the financing aspect, and you've structured your deals very well too, in terms of uh, keeping the dilution down and so forth. But what about talk to us about a couple of your top technical people? Well, Jay, our technical team collectively has been directly involved with discovering and developing over 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil. The uh, individuals headed up by our president and CEO, Steve Swatin, who is a geologist and formerly the uh, global head of business development at BHP Billiton. The rest of the team, like Steve, uh, come from senior management positions at major mining companies. Uh, Enzio Gariki, who is one of the Members of the team was former country manager for Kinross in Brazil. Uh, other members of the technical team are really Brazilian geologists and engineers that have worked in the country for their entire careers. And so, again, to summarize, when you look at a technical team that has been involved with discovering and developing over 10 million ounces of gold here, it gives you a very relevant experience and skill set that uh, makes you think this technical team has definitely done it in Brazil before, has, has accomplished things. And now, of course, uh, with strong equity interest that the entire technical team has in Brazil resources, uh, want to turn this company into the next big success in Brazil. You have um, just we've got only a couple of minutes left here, so we got to move fast. At Kashahira, you've got uh, probably six, seven hundred thousand ounces there now, in all categories. What are the chances of increasing that? How quickly do you expect to move that towards production? So, as far as sort of next developments go, Jay, we. We'd like to see, and we expect to see, hopefully in the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, an, an updated resource estimate at uh, the Cachoeira project. So I think everyone can look forward to that as the next, let's say, milestone or, or event to see what the, uh, what the new resource uh, comes in at. So it's, it's good to know that that work is underway. Following that updated resource, we'll look to uh, commence on a preliminary economic assessment to really move the project down towards near-term production. So I really think this project, uh, given the area and the great infrastructure that's available, has the shot to become a solid near-term production project for us with low capex. And uh, at the Artolandia project in central Brazil, where through trenching we've uh, come up with some very uh, strong numbers, uh, you know, 1% copper, a gram per ton gold, hmm. and some interesting zinc, lead, silver uh, credits as well. Uh, we're starting a drilling campaign in late March, which is all fully funded, uh, which I think can always be uh, exciting when you're drilling a project that hasn't been drilled before but has some very exciting uh, numbers so far and happens to just be south of uh, Yamana's most profitable mine, Chapada, in Brazil. And so it's a very interesting exploration situation, which goes to show you that in addition to the near-term production we think we have at Cachoeira, the company has also positioned itself with some very uh, unique exploration uh, opportunities, which is that 
treasure hunting we all like so much in this business, Jay. But oh, absolutely. This, but all of this is fully funded, and that's the bottom line. Is that that's the bottom not, line? And you mentioned not, you have six, yeah. you have six or seven million dollars. We're out of time, unfortunately. But your website, so people can follow you, and I'll be talking about you on this show too, from time to time. But what is that website again? It's www.brazilresources.com. BrazilResources.com. Thank you very much, Amir. Sorry we're out of time. Folks, don't go away, though, because Jimmy Rogers is going to be with us right after the break. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Jimmy Rogers. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine, operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Jim Rogers. Uh, Mr. Rogers is mentioned most often on this show in connection with the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. That's a fund that Jim Rogers created a number of years ago as a means of measuring the cost of staying alive. I have had the honor of interviewing Jim Rogers on, for my newsletter in the past, but this is the first time I've had him uh, on my radio show. For the benefit of those of you who may have been living under a rock over the last few decades, Jim Rogers co-founded the Quantum Fund and retired at age 37. Since then, he has served as a sometime professor of finance at Columbia University's Business School and as a media commentator worldwide. In 2007, he moved his family to Singapore in the belief that the 21st century will be the century of Asia. 
Jim Rogers is also the author of the bestsellers Investment Biker, Adventure Capitalist, Hot Commodities, A Gift to My Children, and A Bull in China. Jim Rogers has been described as one of the most astute investors Wall Street has ever known, and so we are most grateful to have him with us today on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Welcome, Jim. Really good to have you with us. Oh, Jay, it's my pleasure. Uh, I, I really want to talk to you about your book, Street Smarts, and I've picked up a copy just recently, and it is really a very enjoyable read, Jim, because I, you know, your other books, you, the travel books I've read in the past, and they were very valuable, but this one is really interesting because I think it, it gives um, the reader a sense of your, how you've personally evolved uh, from, uh, from your youth into where you are today. And I think there's a lot of great lessons in there to learn, but I would say to the listeners before we get started on discussing this book, that if there's one reason you want to read this book, you flip it over in the backside and there's a quote from Paul, from Paul Krugman. It says, Jim Rogers makes my head hurt. End of quote. And I think, uh, Jim, if there's a compliment uh, that anybody could make, um, I mean, I would wear that as a badge of honor if I were you. I, I'm delighted he said that. I, almost, I, I'd write a book just so I could put that on the cover. I <laughs> well, you're very, make his head hurt. Well, I would, you know, you, you are a big enough person to say things that Paul Krugman, it makes him hurt, you know, and, and a lot of people, well, I don't know how many people, but people that love liberty, people that love free market economics and democracy and, uh, and freedom, um, you know, probably make Paul Krugman's head hurt. But you are at least a, a, vo- a person that people pay enough attention to that uh, I hope he's got a migraine, frankly. But anyway, let's get into um, uh, your your wonderful book called Street Smarts. Um, starting out in the first chapter, you said, um, and I quote, I write this in the midst of a global financial crisis that most of the world's politicians would have you believe is temporary. Things, we are told, will turn around. I will not argue with that. I'm here to tell you simply that things are unlikely to turn around permanently in your lifetime. End of quote. Now, I would say, Jim, that you're absolutely right. When I watch CNBC and Bloomberg every day here in New York, I get the feeling that uh, we're supposed to believe that things are getting better, and maybe they are slightly getting better. But most of the commentators that uh, we listen to don't have your background as a student of history and philosophy. So I'd like to ask you, what is it that you see in the United States and the Western world in general that convinces you that we are in decline? Well, hey, we're the largest better nation in the history of the world. And the debts are going up at a staggering rate. In the past five years alone, our debts have gone up more than they've gone up in the entire history of the republic before that. Uh, that's that's not that's not a good thing. You know, the largest creditor nations in the world are all in Asia now, and no no country in history that's gotten itself in this kind of position has ever gotten out without a crisis or a semi crisis. There's no way that America can pay its debts. Yeah, it's uh, it is it's huge, and I know, Jim. I've looked at some charts that show total U.S. debt, not just federal debt, but the total debt in the country relative to GDP. Uh, and by compared to 1932, when the total debt to GDP was, I don't know, something like 260 percent, it's like got up to 360 or 380 percent. Recently, it's come back just a little bit after the Lehman Brothers. But I remember how painful it was after Lehman Brothers, and we've only made a little bit of progress in deleveraging, if if any at all. And so, I mean, I can, I really believe that you're right about this. Um, and, and, you know, you draw on history a lot. And I think this is something Americans aren't 
uh, aren't taught history. I had last week a guest on this show uh, who said he believes that the Chinese people know more about uh, America, uh, about our um, about our Constitution than Americans do. And uh, you know, I thought that was that was really quite a uh, quite a com quite a comment. But you are a student of history, and this is, I think, you're basing a lot of your views uh, that are expressed in this book and where America is going on the basis of history. In Chapter 2, you talked about the British Empire in 1920 and how it seemed to control the world at that time, but you noted that it was really in the process of overreaching, uh, as all global, uh, you know, as all empires do. Uh, do you think that that's where the United States is now? Are we in a global overreach that's going to get us into trouble? Well, as I said a few minutes ago, with the largest credit, uh, the largest debtor nation in the history of the world, Jay, we have troops stationed in over 100 countries around the world. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the troops, but just their presence is not making us many friends around the world. We've overreached geopolitically, financially, economically. I mean, we try to tell the rest of the world what to do. I mean, it's fine, if, but the rest of the world doesn't particularly like that. And you wouldn't either if somebody came in and told you what to do with your life. Well, it's, uh, I, I try to put ourselves in that position, but as Americans, we, uh, I don't know, we just, uh, it seems to be a mindset here that somehow, you know, we're going over there, we've got this propaganda that tells us that we're over there for the good of other people. Now, you're, you're someone that's traveled around the world, um, twice, and, uh, well over a hundred countries you, uh, you visited, and you didn't do it just a day or two, you, you took a whole year, I believe, if I remember correctly, and you immersed well, yourself, yes? You, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. You, you immersed yourselves in the cultures of those countries. You learned to know the people and how they think and how they how they act. Uh, so you must have some sense of how they feel about America and America's military presence everywhere. Uh, first, I should say I spent two years going around the world on a motorcycle, and then three years going around the world in a car. So it was five years. It wasn't just one year. Uh-huh. Uh, but what I found, Jay, nearly everywhere in the world is that. People love Americans. They mm -hmm. love you and me and everybody listening. They don't particularly like the American government. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I often agree with them. If the American government makes many, many, many mistakes, throws its weight around, not just throws its weight around the rest of the world, it throws its weight around here in the U.S. And you and I and everybody else is a disadvantage because of that. So, no, it's, it's, they like Americans out there. They don't particularly like the American government. Yeah, you commented on you know the overreach militarily, geopolitically, economically, morally, economically. I can understand that you just touched on that a moment ago with the debt, the huge amount of debt that the United States has taken on, and and it seems sort of in a way we are in competition. I think you would agree with this with the Chinese for raw materials around the world. The Chinese are in Africa, uh, they're they're in many different places trying to get into Canada to get oil and various things wherever they can go. And, and at the same time, we've had the Chinese buying our treasuries for the longest period of time uh, in a way so that we can finance the military that's used to compete with them for raw materials. How long are the Chinese going to continue holding or buying U.S. treasuries? Have they stopped buying treasuries now, in your view, and uh, to what extent do they still own U.S. treasuries? Well, they still are the largest creditor to the U.S. I mean, they own more, uh, well, they don't own more than the Federal Reserve does. They don't own more than the Central Bank in America which, of course, is really outrageous and is going to cause even more problems down the road. But apparently, from if the reports are right, they're not buying, not selling. They're just rolling over what they have mm -hmm. at the moment. Now, who knows if the reports are correct or not. Mm -hmm. but they, what the indications are that they're staying flat. Uh, 
Now, they still have a lot of money coming in, but they're not putting it in the U.S. Treasuries anymore. They're putting mm-hmm. it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, Jay, they're being good capitalists. They're going around the world, buying up uh, assets. They they see what I think I see, that there's going to be more shortages of raw materials developing over the next few years. And so they're buying uh, farms, mines, oil fields. They're, they're preparing for the future. We're just borrowing and spending. They are preparing by buying assets that are the, at the basis of wealth creation. It seems to me the things you're you're talking about mining, you know, uh, resources that you need to build an industrial complex and so forth. That they are definitely uh, investing in. You know, I was uh, one idea that was thrown out. You talked about the Chinese. Maybe or if you if you can believe what you're told about what they own now in treasuries. One idea that I heard expressed was that perhaps the Chinese are buying some assets overseas. Uh, and and you know on time and they're playing and they're paying uh, with dollars over time or with treasuries over time so that they don't dump the treasuries on the market all of a sudden. But but uh, uh, does that sound like something? If I were in in China's shoes, I think that would make sense to me because I wouldn't want to see the dollar get get trashed overnight. I would like to get out slowly, perhaps. Well, as I said before, they seem to be staying flat. But for the last twenty years, they've been increasing their holdings of U.S. government debt. Now they're flat, and I presume that eventually they're just going to let them run off uh, at a at a normal rate, rather than uh, trying to dump them. That would, if I were the Chinese, that's what I would do too. Mm-hmm. I'm not the Chinese, so they're going to do it their way. But I would certainly do it that way. Um, it, getting back to history, in your book, you you mentioned uh, in 1939 the British made it very difficult to uh, take pounds sterling out of the country for the British citizens. Why did they do that? Well, whenever there's a, an economic problem, Jay, politicians always blame it on you and me. They mm-hmm. never acknowledge that they made a mistake, that they fouled up the economy. So what they said was, if we control people and not let them take money out of the country, then chances are it will help su- support the pound and it will help support the economy. Now, that's not the correct attitude, but when politicians are desperate, they do strange things. It's like Roosevelt back in 1933 just took everybody's gold. He blamed all the problems on the fact that the American citizens legally and rightfully and wisely owned gold and just said, I'm going to take it away and that will solve our problems. It didn't solve our problems at all. But that's what politicians do. They go nuts. When, whenever things are going wrong, they find a scapegoat. It's, they frequently blame things like gold. Foreigners, they frequently blame foreigners. They blame people who want to move their money elsewhere where they can get better returns. No, they always look for scapegoats, and I assure you, they never, ever acknowledge that they've made a mistake and resigned. You could probably throw short sellers into that mix of uh, items that you mentioned uh, a moment ago as well. Uh, The U.S. is making it increasingly difficult, it seems to me, to take money out for, you know, average U.S. citizens. And I'm told by a friend of mine in Switzerland um, that wealthy Americans are actually looking to revoke their citizenship so that they don't have all their wealth taken from them. Uh, and that they are, in fact, some of them uh, are not wanting to wait the month or two it takes to get into the consulate to, to revoke their citizenship in Switzerland. They're going to places like Bulgaria to do so. Well, do you see any sort of parallels here? In the, U- the U.S. is on the same track as the Brits in 1939, perhaps, in starting to put into effect capital controls? Well, uh, we've already started capital controls. I don't know if you know. It's very difficult. First of all, there are massive reporting requirements now for Americans who have any money outside the country. And lo and behold, you should never make a mistake because then they'll just take all your money away from you, even if it's a, 
an honest or a technical mistake. So we already have a form of, of exchange controls, capital control. They've also made it most banks, most foreign banks now will not take foreign, will not take American citizens as clients. If you're German or Australian or Brazilian or something, they'll take you as a client. They will not take Americans because the rules are so difficult from the U.S. government that they don't want Americans. Now, we supposedly live in the land of the free. Yeah. But unfortunately, we're less and less free, and other countries are now getting rid of us. I don't like it since I'm, a, since I'm an international investor, but it's mm -hmm. another form of capital control. Well, I, I know that you've traveled in over a hundred countries, as we just uh, said, and you chose uh, Singapore. I was in Singapore a couple of years ago. I'm going to be going back again this year, later this year. Uh, and, you know, I was thinking that, well, maybe Singapore would take my dollars. Uh, maybe I can open an account there, but I think not even Singapore is doing that anymore. But uh, you chose Singapore. Why? Well, I wanted my children to grow up knowing, speaking Mandarin and knowing Asia. If I'm right, the best skills that I can give two children born in 2003 and 2008 is to be prepared for the 21st century by speaking fluent Mandarin, Mandarin Chinese, and by knowing Asia. So, you know, Jay, many people do things for their children. Some people move close to good football coaches. Some move close to good music teachers. We moved our children to Asia so that they would grow up prepared for what I, I hope prepared for the 20, 21st century, at least the, the 21st century that I see coming. You talked in your book about the importance of, of philosophy, understand, studying philosophy and how that really helped you think uh, and adapt to change. And, you know, it's one of the points you made in your book that uh, the only thing that doesn't change is, uh, is that, yeah, you know, the only thing that's permanent is that things change. Or I forget exactly how it was stated, but that's the, the idea. Why, why is the study of import, uh, philosophy, I can understand history, but why is the study of philosophy so important in helping you to think and to be flexible in the way you live your life and adapt? Well, when I was in college, I studied philosophy. I wasn't very good at it, Jay. But I now, later, after I got out, I realized, oh, now I see what they were doing. They were really trying to make me think. Uh, and that's not easy for most of us. Most of us just sit and go along with whatever's happening or whatever we're told. But there's really no reason for any of us to accept anything. Uh, yes, the sun's going to come up in the east tomorrow morning. I'm very sure it is. But how do we know? So philosophy will teach you to question everything. Uh, and once you question everything, then you start having to think. And if you can think for yourself, you're probably going to, well, I don't know if you're going to be successful, but you're going to be way ahead of everybody else. And you may very well wind up being extremely successful. Yeah, and in terms, I know that you talked in your book about um, uh, about MBA students and how they're so plentiful now, and and that at some point in time, well, I, I think that you know the universities are just really teaching kids to regurgitate, and there's a sort of a conventional wisdom people latch onto, and they and they're not flexible. So I I absolutely agree with you on that. Um, you know, we you believe that this is the century of Asia and that's why you moved your family over there that's uh, you've written about it extensively you've talked about it on television uh you've written about it in your latest book here to a great extent uh, how do you think this is going to play out if if the western world is in decline right now you know and i'm thinking of the work of historian spangler i'm i'm supposing that you've read his work in the past 
Uh, how, how is this going to play out now? Um, you know, I just, I, Jeff Berwick is a friend of mine, and he's uh, he sends his missives along to various libertarian friends of his. And he just he was in the Bahamas visiting, uh, well, actually attending a, an, uh, a conference there, and um, uh, and he and he noted about this 2.6 billion dollar hotel casino Bahamar that uh, he says is, you know, most people think is not going to be a success, but he, an economic success, but he's wondering, is the real purpose to colonize the Bahamas, to stash money out of the reach of the Communist Party, to establish a forward operating base for a future conflict with the United States, or, or all of the above? Um, so he says, we're not sure, but uh, they shipped in some 5,000 Chinese workers who are living on the site in temporary housing, that's fenced in. Some might call it a concentration camp. It's disturbing that such a, wor- a worker's paradise just sprang up so close to the United States. Is this uh, is this sort of the modus operandi for China? Are they sending their men? Um, they have lots of too many men relative to to women in China now. I, I believe, at least if if it's true what I what I read, uh, thanks to the one uh, child policy that China had in effect. But is this is this sort of the way? I mean, China has lots of money now, net exporter country. They're building up reserves, U.S. dollars and otherwise. Is this now they have the economic wherewithal? They haven't really built a military that's going to beat the hell out of the United States. But basically, they're just doing it economically. Is that is that how they're gaining influence and power? Well, they certainly are buying up assets around the world. I don't know this particular casino. I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I wouldn't think that a casino is a way to, to infiltrate or to surround the United States. Yeah. Um, it, maybe it is. I don't know. He says he doesn't think it's going to be economic. I don't know. But, but Jay, if they start letting a, a Chinese tourist go to the Bahamas to gamble, I assure you <laughs> it will be a success. They love to gamble in China. There are one billion, three hundred billion of them. And if, they, if the Chinese say, hey, guys, we've got a great casino in the Bahamas, I assure you, you and I should own that casino if yeah. that's going to happen. Uh, and I don't really think that that's a way to surround the U.S. But I will say, I've been tra- traveled around the world, as you point out, and I've seen those kind of compounds everywhere. Americans, if you go to many, any country, you'll see big compounds where American workers are, barbed wire, um, and they all live there. They never have to go out and, and see the, the local uh, population. They don't have to shop outside. They don't have to do anything outside because they all live in these big compounds, uh, and they just have to see other Americans. In the same way with, with mili- our military around the world, you know, they, if you go to some of, the Amer- some of the American military installations around the world, those people never see the, the people in the countries where they're where they're occupying, so it, it's not any. The Chinese, uh, if that's what they're doing, it's not any different from anybody else. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I don't think building a casino is a smart way to to infiltrate. I mean, I think if they were really trying to infiltrate, they would buy up farms or plantations or something in the Bahamas. Jim, I'd like to ask you about uh, the dollar and the uh, the influence of the United States military on the dollar. There recently, um, a Chinese friend of mine, who's actually my IT guy, he's really very clever. Had actually worked in, uh, had been in the Chinese military now as a United States citizen. But he, 
he talked. Uh, he thought it was very interesting that the Japanese and the Chinese were talking about forming a a trading union in which they would exclude the dollar from their trade. They would just use their own currencies to to trade back uh, to trade goods back and forth. So there was sort of a, a warming between Japan and China in his view. But then all of a sudden, this issue of the islands in the South China Sea comes into play and sort of divides, uh, seemingly divides the the warmth that was occurring between the two countries. Of course, they've had lots of problems throughout throughout centuries in the past and lots of bad blood. But uh, do you how important do you think it might be for the United States dollar to continue to be used uh, for the supremacy of the United States? Well, that gives us a great advantage, needless to say. Any country that's got can print its money to pay off its to pay its bills or to pay its debts has a leg up on anybody else. Uh, that has certainly we're the largest debtor nation in the world. Say we would not have gotten to be so so deep in debt if we didn't have the world using the U.S. dollar uh, everywhere. Uh, if, if and when that changes, it's going to cause problems. You know, the world used to use the pound sterling as the world's reserve currency and the world's medium of exchange. That changed, and the U.K., which used to be the richest country in the world, is now probably, I don't know, 28th, 29th uh, in the world in, in, that, uh, in that table. So, no, it's, it's not going to help us as we lose, as, as the dollar loses its status, and it's already starting to happen. More and more people are moving away from the dollar, our, our enemies especially. You know, Iran doesn't use the U.S. dollar anymore. So, no, it, people are moving away, and eventually, unfortunately, you and I and all of everybody listening to this and all of our children and grandchildren are not going to have the same position in the world. Yeah. Well, I, I think, though, the perception or seeing what is coming, and you've done what you can for you and your family to try to protect yourself, uh, given your vision, again, getting back to philosophy and the ability to think and to, I mean, clearly you are one, Jim, that thinks outside the box, and you're one of the few people, uh, you know, I keep my CNBC uh, screen muted and my television muted most of the day, and when I see you and I, three or four other people pop up and I'll hit the mute, I'll take the mute button off and listen because you are somebody that has something different to say. Otherwise, it's a regurgitation process, the same old, same old, and they may as well be replaying Bernanke's speech or somebody else's speech. But when I get somebody that thinks for themselves, then I, I like to, to listen to that. So you've obviously, you know, you've uh, you've put into practice your um, your study of philosophy and, and ability to think outside the box. So when it comes to issues like the bailout, for example, you go on CNBC and say, that was nuts, we shouldn't have done it. Well, I can tell you, Jim, I sat around a, a table of some wealthy investment bankers and hedge fund guys at a luncheon that I go to once in a while here in New York, and I made that point, uh, the one that you have, and I, I think that you still feel the same way. We should not have bailed out the banks in 2008, 2009. But when I tried to argue that, I, I, had, I acknowledged that the people around that table maybe would not have benefited if they had let the banks go down. But I argued that Americans in general would have been better off if we hadn't been enslaved into the future to pay for the bankers' uh, sins of the past. Uh, can you help me and other listeners out by, by making the best argument possible for why the Fed was wrong and the U.S. government was wrong for bailing out the banks? Well, the way capitalism is supposed to work, the way economics is supposed to work, when people get into trouble... Confident people come in, reorganize the assets, and start over from a sound, sounder base. But what we've done in this case is we've taken the money away from the competent people, given it to the incompetent people, and said to the incompetent people, now you can compete with the competent people with their money. 
Now, this is terrible morality. As you know, Jay, I'm not mm. that politicians care about morality, but it's no. terrible economics. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In the early 1990s, Japan said, we're not going to let people fail. And they propped up zombie banks. They propped up zombie companies, as they came to be known. And Japan, in the 90s, had a lost decade. But now they've had two lost decades because that does not work. When you prop up dinosaurs and prevent smart young people or smart new people coming in and competing, then your economy stagnates. Now, the Japanese stock market today is down 75% from where it was uh, 22 year, 23 years ago. 75. Now, if the Dow Jones were down 75%, what would it be, 3,500 or something? Mm. Can you imagine if the Dow Jones were 3,500? But I'm afraid we're heading that way. Now, in Scandinavia, at the same time that Japan took its approach, the Scandinavians took a different approach. They said, if you fail, you fail. They didn't like it, but there was terrible pain in Scandinavia for a couple of years. But then after they reorganized and started over, Scandinavia, the last 15 or 20 years, has been one of the most vibrant parts of the world economy. But let me give you another example where it may come home closer to to home. Uh, In the early 1920s, America had this kind of problem. You know what they did in the the 1920s, early 1920s in America? Jay, they raised interest rates raised interest rates, mm-hmm. and they balanced the budget. Mm-hmm. And you know the rest of that story. They had a terrible 18 months, but then the 1920s became America's most successful ever economic decade. So this way we're doing it has never worked. The other way where people have to take the pain, have to acknowledge their mistakes, that works. It's not fun at first, but eventually that's where you get the payoff. So postponing the, the pain, kicking the can down the road is what is the way people describe it. Jim, I have to just ask you, we only have a few more minutes left and the time goes so fast with you, but I have to ask you about uh, commodities because the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, as I mentioned, we, we talk about it constantly on this show, uh, constantly but frequently because I talk, I like to look at the, uh, I like to look at gold relative to other commodities and it's been pointed out to me that when you have these massive contractions of debt to GDP that gold usually performs better, uh, than it does other times and that the real price of gold rises relative to a basket of currency. So I watched this, uh, before Lehman Brothers and lo and behold, I measure gold to the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. And, and the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, right before Lehman Brothers in the summer of 2008, was about an ounce of gold would have purchased about 15% of the Rogers Fund. By March of 2009, it rose to 44%. It's still around 44%. It got up to 49% with the European crisis and so forth. But um, we've seen gold outperform commodities in general, especially since Lehman Brothers. Uh, the other day you were on uh, CNBC with Maria Bartiromo, and I think she asked you about gold, and you thought you sort of felt sort of indifferent. You felt it maybe wasn't going to go up much, wasn't going down much. You're not a buyer, not a seller. So do you think we might be in a position now when we start to see commodities inflate relative to gold again? Well, you, you, you're right. Uh, commodities is much better than gold for the first several years of the decade, and since then gold has done better than commodities as a basket. You're exactly right about that. I do own gold. I do own silver. I'm not buying or selling right now because, you know, gold has been up 12 years in a row, Jay, which is extremely Mm -hmm. unusual for any asset, at least as far as I know. And you also have a lot of speculators. The CFTC numbers show that a lot of speculators are buying gold. So 
I'm I'm just watching. I've had some of my gold. I've had a little of my silver, not much, but some, uh, because it wouldn't surprise me if gold might not continue to take a rest. But more important, Jay, the Indians, the Indian government, mm-hmm. India's a, the largest buyer of gold in the world. Well, Indian politicians are now blaming their problems on gold, <laughs> and, they, and and they they're they're raising uh, taxes on gold, and they're talking about trying to ban the import of gold. Hmm. I don't know if that would happen, but if that if they did something like that, since mm-hmm. they're the largest buyer of gold, Jay, then gold would take a big hit. Now, if it takes a big hit, I hope I'm smart enough to buy a lot more. But uh, there are things going on in gold, especially what's happening in India, which worries me. I'm not selling my gold. I'm, I'm not selling my silver. But I do worry about what the Indians are doing. Um, Jim, I understand that you're going to be participating in a movie that David Tice is putting on, and David is going to be on this show sometime in the near future. It's called The Bubble, and it's based, I, I believe, on a book that's written by Tom Woods. And you, along with Ron Paul, Mark Faber, uh, Peter Schiff, Doug Casey, Jim Grant, uh, Gene Epstein, who's on this show frequently, most of these gentlemen have been as well. But um, you are going to be, as I understand it, involved in this movie, perhaps? Well, I know they came and filmed me uh, uh, quite a lot, and it was uh, an enjoyable interview. Certainly, it was a lot of fun. I don't know if they're going to use me or not, but it, it it makes sense what they're trying to do. I hope somebody listens. Well, I do too, and I know that Ron Paul has, uh, who's been on this show a, a number of times. Ron uh, has really. Uh, really worked hard to try to educate people as you have and as these other people that I just named have uh, over the years to free market economics and how the problems the policymakers are creating now and how the problems we're having are related to those policies. But um, as a student of history, in your view, what are the odds that America can restore the vision of liberty and freedom uh, that the founding fathers gave us before uh, we bite the dust. Is there any way that we can postpone, or is there any way that we can turn things around yet? What are the odds? Is there a way? Yes, of course there's a way. Are they going to do it? No, of course they're not going to do it. Be serious. We've already, you know, just in the past 10 years, there's no longer habeas corpus. that you can, They can break into your house. They don't have search warrants anymore. Mm-hmm. They can go into your bank account. They can go into your garage. I mean, we've already lost quite a lot of what used to be the land of the free, and it's getting worse. It's not getting better. Throughout history, when countries have started having this kind of problem, they take away people's rights. They say it's for their own good, but it's never for their own good. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Of course, it it certainly is helpful, though, to understand uh, what's coming and to try to prepare for it, and and hopefully, uh, if there's enough people that understand the causes of the problem, maybe there's some chance sometime of turning things around. But as you said earlier on, uh, and I quoted from your book, you're suggesting that we not count on it in our lifetime. So I think, you know, Jim, it's it's always best to know what the truth is, even if the truth isn't what we want to hear. And I want to thank you very much for uh, for helping us with that and you on your ongoing crusade to help people understand the reality of, of markets and, and of life in general. And I just want to tell our readers again, Street Smart by Jim Rogers, you've got to read it. And if for no other reason, the fact that Paul Krugman has said Jim Rogers makes my head hurt. I mean, if you understand what's going on and uh, if you understand why our liberties are being taken away, 
but more than that, this is a very interesting book in that it has a lot of, it's really a story of Jim Rogers to a great extent, and also I think some interesting things. For example, the account of how Jim parted company with uh, George Soros, a very, very fascinating account. Just an excellent book. Thank you very much, Jim, for being with us again today. My pleasure, Jay. Let's do it again sometime. Would love to. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with our next guest after the break. Don't go away. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. 